we are in uh, class eight out of ten in uh, the the Burroughs book, the rare jewel of Christian contentment. And uh, while this is maybe a bit an oversimplification, the first half of the book focuses on contentment, and the second half of the book focuses on discontentment. And specifically, Burroughs labors uh, a lot to show us the idea that discontentment in particular is evil. It is evil. It is not a neutral state of mind. It is not, um, you know, some sort of just... Uh, unfortunate disposition that we might have from time to time. It is evil. We must repent of it. We must flee from it. And in the first week on discontentment, two weeks ago, we defined it and we began looking at the fact that it is evil. Last week, Burroughs had three objectives for us. It was to continue about, uh, understanding that it's evil. Second, it was to look at the harmful effects that discontentment can produce in our lives. And then third, it was to understand and examine just how discontent is actually beyond evil, beyond harmful, stupid, foolish. Um, And uh, we deliberately didn't get through all three of those things last week. We got through evil, we more or less got through harmful, but we left stupid for today. Um, So we'll be focusing on that first and foremost. And I did that deliberately because the chapter that we're supposed to be focusing on, uh, which is chapter 10 in the book, if you're following along, is a little shorter on content, and so I needed some filler, so we're going to combine those two. So we'll focus on the foolishness or stupidity of discontentment, and then the the rest of the class will be focused on what Burroughs calls the aggravations of discontentment, or the aggravations of murmuring. And what he means by that are those situations, circumstances, truths, realities, whatever, that actually make discontentment worse. And uh, just a quick illustration to to see where we're going to go. Two weeks ago, we spent some time defining discontentment by looking at number 16 and Israel grumbling in the desert. That is bad. Their discontentment, their grumbling is wrong per se, period. But it is made worse by the fact that it was not that long ago that God displayed his covenant faithfulness, graciousness, goodness, and love in delivering them from Egypt. Had it been some other nation wandering in the desert and grumbling, it still would have been bad, but especially bad considering the depth of mercy and grace that God had just shown Israel in rescuing them as powerfully as he did from slavery. So that's an example of a situation in which discontentment is actually worsened. Um, And that's what we're going to cover today, but before we jump in, we'll pray. Oh Lord, thank you again for this opportunity to dig into... Uh, this book and your word, Lord, I pray that you would let uh, these truths fall on fertile soil, Lord, that we would be encouraged, that we would be admonished, that we would be repenting as necessary, Lord, all for the glory and in the grace of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so as we turn to the foolishness stupidity, whatever word anyone feels most comfortable with, with respect to discontentment. Just one quick disclaimer. Uh, I don't know how to do this without sounding at least a little condescending, right? Like it's, it's, it's subject matter that is automatically sort of like aghast. How dumb is this? Um, And so not my intent. It's just sort of the content itself. Uh, So apologies in advance. If there's a little bit of that kind of flowing through, I'm going to try to 
not let that happen. Um, but again, apologies if it does come through. And if you really want to blame someone, feel free to blame Burroughs. You know, he's been dead for like 500 years. You can take it. It's okay. Um, but uh, just, just, just fair warning in advance. Um, but okay, but the very first one the, uh, is that it makes one do stupid and rash things. Um, and, and the basic idea here is that when you're discontented, no one really likes feeling that way. And so you may be inclined to, to try to fix the problem in some way. And you can be tempted to fix it in a big, bold, brash, foolish way. Um, examples would include a student who is discontented over how, how school is going, so they drop out. Or someone who you know is struggling. I've used the promotion example before. I'll use it a bunch today as well. But someone who's struggling about some coworker getting the promotion, and so they rage quit their job, regardless of the circumstances that may put their family in. Those sorts of things, and so you can you can make big impulsive decisions uh, leading from discontentment, but you can also do a series of small stupid decisions that add up as well. Um, and I'm going to ask you guys, you know, to kind of help me think this through a little bit. But we're going to use marriage as an analogy. Imagine a situation in which a spouse, we'll, we'll say a wife, is really upset at her husband. Um, now, she isn't the type of person to do any big or bold things, but she is the type of person who might do those little tiny things over time that add up. What sorts of small ways might a, a discontented spouse express her, her dissatisfaction over time? Throw, throw, some, throw some basic things out. What, what, what might she do? Stacy. Well, I had a friend tell me once. Silent treatment, just general unhappiness in Okay, all right, so silent treatment, little distance. What else might happen? His least favorite dinner. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> Poor cooking, too much salt. <laughs> Did you have one, Sherry? No dinner at all. No dinner at all? Okay, okay. Starvation, that makes sense. A guy, yes, please, go ahead. <laughs> she might call her husband stupid. She might call him stupid, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Name calling. Anything else? Any other ideas? Well, you, you, can, you can see how each one of those things individually may not be the biggest deal in the world, but cumulatively, starving, name-calling, silent treatment, it's not really going to make for a happy marriage. It's going to worsen the situation. In the same way, too, the discontented person can make those series of small choices that add up to a lot. Um, going back to that promotional example, it would be a big rash decision to say, you know what, I was going for that job at work and, you know, Bob got it and, uh, and so I'm, I'm going to quit. It would be a series of small stupid decisions to say, you know what, like, Bob got the job because when I'm at community group or working on su or at church on Sunday morning, you know what Bob's doing? Bob's in the office. He's putting in the overtime. He's doing X, Y, and Z. And so what I might be tempted to do is not say, I'm going to quit church or I'm going to quit the community of the body of Christ. Of course I wouldn't do that. I'm way too spiritual for that. But on Sunday nights, when it's a choice between going into work and doing, or going to community group and doing a little bit of work, you know, maybe I make that one-time choice. That turns into a two-time choice. Question about, uh, do I go to the, the networking meeting after service or do I go to that Bible study or prayer meeting, whatever else? Again, little choice here and there that adds up eventually to neglect. 
So discontentment is foolish because it can lead us to do big, stupid, rash things or a bunch of small, stupid things that add up to something big and painful in an attempt to fix whatever problem that we're facing. Questions, comments on that one? No? All right. Uh, Number two, or letter B there, uh, it makes one unthankful. Can I get a volunteer uh, to read... uh, passage. I'm going to have you hold it for a second, but just a volunteer. Josh, thank you. All right. First uh, Corinthians 3, 21 to 23 for you, sir. First Corinthians 3, 21 to 23. I'll call you in a second. Um, but here, the idea is that the discontented person can easily overlook, ignore, or minimize the blessings that they otherwise have. And, and Burroughs, I'm going to quote him, he says, discontent makes those mercies that they have from God as nothing to them because they do not have what they want. And he goes on in that same context to give an analogy. He says, suppose that you were to give a friend or a relation some money to trade with. And he came and said, what is this you've given me? This is only a few coins here. This is no good to me. This would be intolerable to you that he should react to your gift like this just because you have not given him as much money as he would like. It is just the same when you are ready to say, all that God has given me is worthless. It is only a few coins. And he would go on to say, in maybe more modern lingo, that's clearly nuts. That's just crazy. That's completely wrong. And if we were to sit here and we were to count our blessings, we would be here for a while. Josh, do you mind uh, reading that passage, uh, 21 to 23? So then, let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos, or Cephas or the world, or life or death, or things present or things to come. All things belong to you. All things belong to you. All things are yours, depending on the translation. Everything is ours. We're, we're heirs of everything. That's, I mean, in Paul... Paul isn't using that in a in a in a in a, a generic sense. I mean, he, he really whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, everything is ours. And the discontented person, the hypothetical discontented person, is going to call out God because something doesn't match our expectations in this particular moment. That's wrong. It's wrong, and it's just foolish. It's absolutely foolish. Um, And in fact, it's so foolish, Burroughs is going to come back and beat this horse a couple of times this morning. Um, But any questions on that particular one? Any comments? All right. All right, so letter C then um, is, uh, it leads one into other sins. Um, This is one of a couple this morning where he he uses some archaic language and I'm, I'm interpreting a little bit. Um, but I think this is what he means. Being, being discontent can lead to other sins. Um, and in a sense, we kind of just covered this, right? I mean, we just said it can lead to unthankfulness and gratitude, which is, since we're told, we're commanded to be grateful, uh, would be a sin. Right before that, we, can set, we said that you might do you know, certain things that, that result in sin or are sin themselves to try to fix the situation. Um, so I think it's clear discontentment can lead to other sins. But I included this one because Burroughs adds just a little, a little nuance here. And he says that because discontent can lead us to engage in sins that we otherwise wouldn't to fix the problem, doing so may then invoke further consequences or discipline from God that would actually make the discontented person more discontent. In other words, being discontent can lead you to do stuff to make it worse. 
Um, and then you know, going back to going back to the the marriage analogy as well. You know, you have an, you have an unhappy husband because his wife is starving him, giving the silent treatment, whatever else. Um, and uh, so he finds himself thinking, well, maybe the grass is greener somewhere else. He uh, he's unhappy, and so his eye starts to wander. Not excusing it, it's just sort of the the potential sinful way the heart might go. And you know, what would make that unhappy situation worse: adultery, pornography getting caught flirting with a neighbor's wife, whatever whatever he might do as a result of it is certainly not going to help that marital situation in any way, shape, or form. Um, discontentment is foolish because it can lead to other sins. If you are discontent, Burrow says, <laughs> buckle up because it actually will probably make your circumstances worse. Questions on that one? Comments? All right. Um, letter D there, at least I hope that's letter D. Uh, you lose the comfort of the things that you do have. So this one is also related to being ungrateful for what God has done for us due to our being discontent. Um, but not only are we not grateful to God for the things that he has done or given us, we can also let the blessings that we do have foolishly stop bringing us comfort and joy. Um, and to give an, an, an analogy for that one, um, does anyone happen to have a favorite meal at a favorite restaurant? Like, it's, it's your favorite meal at a particular place. Anyone have anything like that? Any, they'd, they'd be willing to share. Please. Uh, Anthony's uh, Italian uh, cuisine has the best lasagna. That's the only thing I want to <laughs> All right, lasagna is from Anthony's. Do you, do you get like an appetizer as well? Uh, no, no, just, just lasagna. Okay, okay, okay. All right, all right, all right. It's a little salad. Okay, so imagine, imagine you're at Anthony's, you love the lasagna, and it's, you know, it's date night or whatever else, doesn't matter. And you do, you, you, have, you, you happen to have, you know, that favorite salad that goes along with it, plus lasagna. Maybe, you know, you're looking at the tiramisu. I'm hungry. Um, and you know, particularly the drink that you like that complements it. So you have you have this like you know four item meal in mind at Anthony's, the centerpiece of which is the lasagna, of course. Everything else is secondary. The lasagna is primary, but you want the other things. It complements the whole experience. And you get there, you sit down, and you've been salivating for weeks. You you, you want this. The waiter sits down, and you know you're a regular. That's your Tuesday meal, whatever. And he sits down, looks at you, and goes, ooh. We're actually out of the tiramisu. Like I know, I know it's it's not the big thing, but we're out of the tiramisu. Imagine how foolish it would be to to get in a huff, to stand up and walk out of the restaurant because, despite everything else you have, even the most important pieces, because you didn't get something else that's smaller and more trivial, you ruin the whole thing. And that's what discontentment is. We, we have a circumstance or a, a desire, a thing that we want. It has an outsized priority in our life, but it is not the most important thing. And we are willing to walk away or ignore or minimize the blessings that we do have because of this thing that has been given outsized life in our hearts. It's silly. We let good things, we let the blessings that God has given us, be treated in a diminished capacity or diminished fashion because whatever we want in a particular moment, we don't have. It's kind of like being freezing cold and knowing that you don't have the perfect jacket that's going to address the cold, 
but being unwilling to put on the sweaters and the jackets that you do have. Maybe it doesn't quite get you to the level of comfort that you want, but you are refusing to put on what God has given you, what you do have to take care of yourself. It's in the same way discontentment causes us to sort of laser gaze on something and ignore the blessings that we have. Questions on that one? Comments on that one? Yes, Randy. The things that you have, but two, two scriptures come to mind while you're speaking. Were there a lot about the graves in Egypt? And also, we have pots of meat in Egypt. Mm-hmm. I'm not that they were necessarily in a position of comfort, but they were in God's care. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Even, even, even in the context of Egypt, there was still provision and care. Um, and for a while, Egypt wasn't bad. I mean, we're at the part of the story in, Greg, uh, in Genesis as Greg's preaching through where Egypt is quite good for Israel. You know, eventually it goes downhill. So yes, absolutely. There's always, there's always blessing um, in the midst of, of what's going on. I will actually come back to that one later. Uh, letter E there. Discontentedness like anxiety won't get you what you want. Um, this is not directly related, but it is by analogy. Can I get someone to put a finger in Matthew six twenty seven? Thanks, Matt. Um, but discontentment or discontentedness is foolish because it doesn't get you anything. Um, and I said put a finger, but Matt, the, it's t- the time has arrived. Please read <laughs> Matthew six twenty seven. Finger there. <laughs> now, which of you, by being anxious, can have a single hour to spend on life? Now, Jesus is, again, he's talking about anxiety, not discontentedness, but the point is, is that worrying about something doesn't fix something, doesn't address the problem. You can't make your life longer. You can't make the crops come in. Whatever the thing you're, you're freaking out about, anxiety doesn't actually help solve the issue. Um, being upset, generalizing this discontentedness, being upset about cancer doesn't cure cancer. Um, a couple of weeks ago when we had all those big winter storms, there was a, a school uh, down in Merced that uh, flooded entirely because a levee broke. So an elementary school, three, four hundred kids. Um, some places were under like four feet of water. I can imagine that principle every day after that happened, that the rain kept coming down or we saw the forecast until that levee was fixed. I could imagine him getting really mad at the rain, right? But getting mad at the rain is not exactly going to make the rain stop. Had Job shook his fist at God, it wouldn't have brought back his kids or his possessions. Discontentedness will never result in getting you what you want. Discontentment is foolish because it's futile. It's foolish because it's futile. And then in, is it second to last? No, there's a couple more. Okay, Uh, letter F. Uh, People who are discontent don't conduct themselves commendably. People who are discontent don't conduct themselves commendably. This one, um, he doesn't go into much detail. This is like four sentences in the book, but what he's really saying is that discontentedness doesn't reflect well on a person. If you are a bitter complainer, you are probably going to look to the surrounding world like a, like a whiner or like someone who's easily offended, someone who's spoiled, something along those lines. That's sort of the picture of your character that you're painting to the outside world. And I think what Burroughs is saying here is that discontent is foolish because it makes you look like a fool. Um, pretty, pretty simple concept, I think. Uh, 
letter G, we are flying through these, good, okay. Uh, letter G, um, it eats out the good and sweetness of a mercy before it comes. It eats out the good and sweetness of a mercy before it comes. Um, clearly a quote, but under this point, Burroughs makes two, two points, two basic you know, comments. Um, and in reality, they're kind of like two different sides of the same coin, so there, there's a lot of overlap between them. Uh, but the first point he makes is that God may actually withhold a blessing because of your discontentment. Um, in other words, you may not have the thing that you're wanting because you have let it become an idol to you and a cause of your rebellion, and God is not inclined to support your idolatry. Um, the thing you want may be good. It might be you know, a better-paying job to support a family. It might be having a family. It might, you know, there's a number of things that you might want that themselves are not bad, that they are themselves good, but because you have let it become an idol to you, because the place it has in your heart makes it bad, God withholds it from you. And if you would get your priorities right, when whatever you're pining for gets taken off the altar of your heart and Jesus gets installed there instead, when that happens, God may bless you with the thing that you're pining for. But discontent is the reason you don't have it. Um, the second sort of side of this coin that Burroughs points out is a scary one. It's that, conversely, God may give us what we want, but discipline us with it. God may give us what we want, but discipline us with it. Um, I've used that promotion example. I'll, I'll use it again here. Um, imagine we go back to that person who got passed over for the promotion. Bob got it. We don't like Bob. Bob's our enemy. Um, and so I decide that I'm going to start doing those things that I said I was going to do, which is uh, you know, neglect church you know, incrementally here by there. Uh, and, uh, and really put the same work in that Bob did because there's another promotion around the corner. Well, I get that promotion. And with that promotion, God gives me consequences that follow. The workload ends up being crushing and not worth the pay. The respect that I thought I was going to get from friends and family for this new title doesn't materialize. Um, my spouse and I begin to fight because of how much time I'm spending in the office or the relationships that are faltering at church. Um, in other words, you get what you wanted, but you end up worse off because of it. Uh, I think I quoted this a couple of weeks ago, but it's worth saying again. Burroughs notes that when he sees a brother who is discontent because of the lack of some circumstance, some blessing, something that is not inherently wrong, this is what he says he prays. Lord, do not give it to them until their heart is made right over the issue, which is the attitude I think we should have towards one another and certainly our own, our own hearts as well. Um, this is the last one, so let me get through this and then we can circle back on any of these if there's any questions or comments or examples anyone wants to share. Uh, but this one is likewise pretty simple, pretty self-explanatory. Letter H, it makes our afflictions worse. But this is the final example again of the foolishness of discontent. Um, you know, if, if, if someone, going back to cancer, if someone gets cancer, I think we can all agree that's a, that's a bad thing. It's a harmful thing. It's not fun. No one's going to say it's, it's the best time of my life. Right? It, it clearly is painful, a painful providence. It's, it's, it's painful physically. It's costly. It hinders our ability to fulfill our, our blessed duties to one another because of the lack of energy and treatment and everything else that goes along with it. But you know what's worse? Than getting cancer? 
having cancer and being bitter and angry over it. Not only does your bitterness and angry, anger not resolve the situation, but you have less joy, you have less peace, and, and you cut yourself off from going to the God who can comfort you, who can offer consolation, hope, and healing. And in that sense, discontentment is foolish because it makes our afflictions worse. All right. Uh, any of that unclear? Any questions on any of it? Um, any additionals or helpful things anyone wants to circle back to and add some, some commentary on? Gary. Mm-hmm. And I know from my own experience in my own life, and, and then I've heard this said by other teachers, pastors, my own reading of the scripture. But I found that if you dwell on thankfulness, which you kind of mentioned, mm-hmm. and you're thankful, and you start going and being thankful, being thank, and man, you just you're crabby. You're not thankful, but okay, you're in there. You're saying thank you, thank you. Next thing you know, hey, uh, you know, and then do it again, mm-hmm. and do it again, mm-hmm. do it again, and do it again, do it again. That's just what uh, I would say from my own experiences. Do it again. <laughs> be thankful and, and take the time to really look at all your blessings and it can help you through all these other yeah. parts that you are sharing here yeah the, the the point there you know labor at gratitude especially when you don't feel it try over and over and over again uh, be thankful thank God and watch sort of the the, the grateful heart follow the the affirmation. Um, and actually, Burroughs is going to uh, talk about that a little bit more later as well. So, good point. Thank you. Anyone else? Okay. Where is there, and I apologize if I'm your head, where's the, um, oftentimes I think discontentment and uh, ambition might be two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. Like, where is, do you have a comment on not just, it, it's not, not just being discontented with the, 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 the scenario or situation you might be in in your life? How, how is that a sinful area which discontentment is versus ambition to better that scenario or situation? Do you think there's a clear-cut definition there? Or? Yeah, no, I don't, I don't think there's any, like, stark, fine dividing line. I think when we start talking about ambition, the immediate question goes back to the heart motive undergirding it right um and so is it a desire to be rich in a you know contra first timothy six is it um you know a desire to be able to you know support uh, uh the church more or fund a missionary thing or save up so that you can go do some missionary trip you know whatever whatever the heart motivation is is really going to i think drive whether or not that ambition is is godly or not um and you know to the extent that your desire to better a circumstance for a godly reason that shouldn't lead to discontent unless something else is going on or you're wrong about your heart motive. Um, and so if you find yourself in that discontented situation, your ambition is probably sinful. It's, it, you know, off the cuff, uh, a 20-second counseling answer would be sort of something along those lines. Um, that said, I'll get you that. Um, that said, too, I think... Um, you know, as you're as you're kind of working that through, 
it, it, it is it is a it is a hard line because some of the things that you may want may themselves be good you know you might need, want to be addressing someone's suffering or, or issue in, in, a, in a life too and that can be something that has with it you know more than just a you know, whatever happens happens type motivation like you may want it you may yearn for it but I think the fruit of your ambition it's either going to manifest in a submission a prayerfulness to God a a a passion that doesn't uproot other things in your life or it's going to lead into that more rebellious like I'm going to get this at all cost peace and depending on which path you're going it probably tells you what the root causes is your attitude during the process right is it continuation of murmuring or are you remaining content in the midst of these processes probably a good gauge yeah for the for the tape, Matt says I'm right, so that's perfect. Okay, um, <laughs> Sherry. Does contentment be a good thing in the sense of, of for bad things and sin that you you're discontent with with those bad things, and that would be um, uh, encouraging you to want to do something different? So you're discontent with that lifestyle or, or whatever or a thing, and that it uh, motivates you to get away from it. So I see this contentment can be a good thing in a certain way. Yeah, yeah it's it, that's a that's a that's a really interesting point. I think um, that that's, that kind of goes back to in that first week while we where we labored to make sure we were defining discontentment in a very particular way because if. You know, fast forward two weeks from now, and I use this word for the seven hundredth time um, in these in these classes. Um, it can really easily be misconstrued as as just sort of like being unhappy about something or not liking a situation. But biblical discontentment is more than that. It is that sort of rebellious. God has done something wrong. This isn't right. This isn't fair. Um, and if we were to take that particular position over our sin, that would be completely missing the point, I think, of, of our own personal responsibility for our own sin. Um, whereas if we are grieved, um, um, gosh, is it, um, the, the passage in Second Corinthians is escaping my mind right now, but if we're, we're grieved over sin, we're indignant over it, we are, we are desirous to not have it uh, there anymore, and, and, and we hate the fact that it's present, um, that's not discontent in, in the sense that we're defining in the class, but that is a, a, a godly um, hatred over, you know, indwelling sin in our flesh. Does that, that distinction make sense, Sherry? Okay, okay. So, it, feel that, just just don't call it discontentment. <laughs> Christy? Um, I'm not sure how to ask this, but does discontentment, like, uh, could that be, like, like, can God make us feel discontent because something needs to change or we need to change or like a location needs to change or I mean because I felt this before like um, with just with like circumstances going on like you know there's like hard stuff going on in different areas and then you're like I'm feeling discontent over these things and something needs to change Mm -hmm. is that God using that to to bring about change? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, that's a big, it's a big question. Um, 
yeah, I, the, the short version, talk, totally talk later if you like, is, is number one, um, simply, simply seeing that there's situations and circumstances that are going on that are suboptimal, um, and I'm being deliberately general there, um, is not itself discontentment, right? Again, it goes back to that, that rebellious heart. Um, and so seeing, like, I don't like this, this is problematic for legitimate reasons, you know, is, is not necessarily inherently wrong or bad. Um, desiring to change that is not also automatically wrong or bad, um, but I will be the last person to stand up here and say, if you feel something, that's like God automatically doing something else. Um, that's a dangerous, dangerous path to go down. It, it could be something he's working in your life, but prayer, counsel, conformity to scripture, um, being really, really careful about sort of saying like, well, because this providence happens to be working out a certain way and I feel a certain way about it. Therefore, God is automatically telling me to go do this thing. Um, it's a very slippery slope. Blake. I think it's good to make a, a certain distinction with these things, which is that I think discontentment is when, biblical discontentment is when we consider God untrustworthy or not reliable in answering our needs or our desires mm-hmm. or our or our, uh, our, uh, our emergencies or our problems but it's okay to, to be unhappy if something is unpleasant and we dread it and we try to avoid it mm-hmm. and we don't enjoy it and we're grieved by it I think there's a difference between yep. the two because Sometimes life brings us really unpleasant things, but we can still be trusting the Lord. Yeah. And when we're not trusting the Lord or we're casting a bad name on his character, then that's biblical discontent. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great summation. Um, and uh, maybe to just to put a quick verse to it, when James says, count it all joy, brothers, when you encounter trials... I, I don't think he's saying, like, say, yeah, I got punched in the face today. I think it's more like that thing happened, and I'm joyous over it because of what God is working in our life, not because of the specific pain that it was caused. I don't think Paul ever was happy as the stones hit him in the back of the head. I think he's happy over what God is doing and how he's using that in the context of the church. And I think that distinction is really important. We're not called to sort of have this like completely laissez-faire, you know, whatever happens, happens. Like, I don't care about my circumstances, you know, approach to life. That's not what we're being called to in the scripture. It's, it's more seeing what God is doing, having the right priorities, trusting him, and never letting that turn into sort of a, this is unfair, this is wrong, what are you doing, God, type response. All right. Um, for sake of time, we have to move on, uh, but that was, that, was, that was a really good sort of you know, refresh, I think, on, on discontentment, um, you know, it, it, the, the basics and definitions. But let's move on to the aggravations of the sin of discontentment or the sin of murmuring, as um, Burroughs technically titles it. And so if you're following along in the book, uh, this would be chapter 10 that we're now moving into. Um, And again, this chapter is all about those situations and circumstances in which discontent is especially bad. Um, And one thing, though, as you see as we go through this, when I I opened the chapter up for the first time, you know, I I think I was, and if you're reading along, it'd be reasonable to expect that some of these situations might be more applicable than others. 
But as you go through, I think we're going to see most of them apply to us 99% of the time, um, which is, I think, Burroughs' cheeky way of sort of putting the cherry on top of the discontentment is evil Sunday, um, but essentially by saying that discontentment is bad, but it's especially bad when Christians do it. Um, it's especially evil when we do it. And so as we go through this, take note of how many of these situations are just true in general of us. Some are circumstance, fact pattern specific, but a lot of these are just true for every single person in Christ. Um, Another quick disclaimer as we go through, some of these are going to feel a little duplicative. Um, He does cut some pretty fine distinctions, but I think there's enough meat there to justify having them be separate on the list. But if you, if you can't understand the difference between letter A and letter G when we get there, totally fine. Again, he, he's, he's cutting some pretty fine lines here. Um, okay, so, the, the and I, I structured all of these with the word when. So imagine I'm saying discontentment is especially evil, or we compound the sin of discontentment when is sort of the, the organizing principle. So discontentment is especially evil when we enjoy an abundance of mercy. Um, basic idea, the greater more abundant the mercy we enjoy, the greater and viler the sin of discontentment. Now, Burroughs doesn't use the word mercy the way that we tend to do modernly. We tend to use it in the sense of judgment or guilt. When we do something wrong, we don't get punished that's usually how we use mercy. He, he is using it to refer to any blessing that we have received because every good thing we have received is itself a mercy. We deserve none of it. So as we go through this, just substitute the word blessing for mercy. Um, and so the idea, again, is the more blessings we have received, the worse it is when we are discontented. Um, and uh, uh, by way of analogy, you know, if I showed you two men, a really rich multi-millionaire and a starving homeless person and they were both discontented we would generally at least understand why the homeless starving homeless person was discontent we would probably be aghast at the whining multi-millionaire for for whatever they're they're worried or upset about um and so in a way this is kind of a self-explanatory principle um and in, in this room right now, there are a variety of life circumstances. There's a variety of people who have things that other people want, who either they, they don't have it yet because of their stage in life, or they physically can't have it, or, or whatever else the case may be. We're not all in the same place. We don't all have the exact mix of, of, of blessing from God. But compared to the rest of the world... And certainly, compared to the vast majority of human beings on this planet over the last 6,000 years, we have it pretty darn good. I hope we can agree that we have it pretty darn good. And so, it is especially shameful if we who are so blessed were to complain that we aren't blessed enough, is Burroughs' point. Um, I'm going to say that again. It is especially shameful if we who are so blessed were to complain that we aren't blessed enough. And... This, at this point in the chapter, Burroughs spends actually a little bit of time emphasizing the point kind of Gary made about being thankful and, and counting your blessings. And so he actually offers in this, in this uh, you know, anti-discontentment chapter uh, two pieces of advice that, that we, he wants us to cons- uh, consider to help us ward off discontentment. And the first one there is to count our blessings regularly. 
count our blessings regularly. And uh, he's clear, not when you're discontented. Certainly it's a good practice to do it, but he's not saying count your blessings when you are discontented. Uh, If you wait until you are unhappy, you will probably never count your blessings like you should. Uh, We kind of covered that already if you do it at all. It is like saying, you know what, I want to have a theology of dating and marriage, but I'm going to start thinking that through 10 years into my marriage. That's not a good idea. Like, think about that before you start getting married is probably the sequence of events that you want to, you want to have. Um, so in the same way, count your blessings regularly to ward off potential discontentment in the future. Um, and then second, he says understand that you might be afflicted in one area and yet blessed in another. So again, related to counting your blessings, this is more about recognizing your blessings, even in the context of discontentment. And he, he cites uh, King David and his, his, his kids. Uh, he cites Absalom and Solomon. Um, one child, Absalom, was a rebel who did serious harm to the kingdom, whereas Solomon was a blessing who elevated the kingdom. God blessed David in one child, and he afflicted him in another. And in in the same way, there are times where we might be blessed in one venue and another where God makes it hard on us. Um, You know, you might be struggling at work while your home life is especially sweet. You uh, might be blessed in some ministry in the church while you can't seem to crack a subject at school. Um, And it's pretty easy, I think, to sort of generalize what that might look like in our variety of life situations. But we might be blessed in one area and struggling in another. And the point he raises is we need to recognize that just because some area is going poorly doesn't mean that every area is going poorly. And when the Lord blesses us in a way that balances out the affliction, it's folly for us to see the bad and fail to recognize the good. And uh, I I like this quote. I'm going to end this point on this quote. He says, If you do not make the mercies of God helps against your murmuring, you will make them aggravations of the sin of murmuring. In other words, you know, if you don't count your blessings, if you don't recognize the good that you have in the proportion that you have it, um, if you don't make them helps to ward off discontent, they will be reasons why your discontent is all the more worthy of guilt. Questions on that particular point or comments? All right, letter B there then. Uh, discontentment, especially evil, when it is over small things. When it is over small things. Uh, this is a pretty self-explanatory one as well. I think we would all agree, even you know the average worldly perspective, there are things that matter more than, than other things. Um, in marriage, adultery is a big deal. Occasionally not taking out the trash is not. It's not, okay? It's not. Uh, at work, showing up late once in a while isn't a big deal. Embezzling, however, is. So, you know, there's, there's differences of degrees of certain things. Um, and in the chapter, Burroughs asks us to imagine, I like this one, he asks us to imagine someone who owns a massive mansion, plenty of property in a highly desirable area. Um, the mansion is equipped with servants, cars. The person has every earthly comfort one can imagine. 
And he says, imagine that this, this property includes these incredible vineyards and gardens, places of just breathtaking beauty, carefully curated vineyards and gardens. And now imagine that the owner of the garden walks through and he sees like one little tree branch that's broken off and fallen onto the ground. And the guy's like on the ground throwing a temper tantrum, weeping over this fallen branch when he has everything else that one could possibly want. We would be aghast if we saw that. We, we, we think that would be absolutely horrific. Um, and yet there are some pretty petty things that we can be discontented over. And even if we find ourselves discontented over something that, from a worldly perspective, matters, going back to what we talked about in the last couple of weeks, you think about all the blessings that we have. We think about what our biggest issue is, sin, which has been entirely resolved in Christ with respect to the penalty. We are freed from the power of sin, and we have a rock-solid promise that we will be freed from the presence of sin. When God has done all of this for us, whatever circumstance that we're discontented in this life is petty and small by comparison. We are like that temper tantrum throwing property owner, is Burroughs' point. So in that sense, our discontent is worse um, because it's over small things. Questions on that one? Comments? All right, letter C then. Uh, Discontentment is especially evil. I'm going to stop saying that. It's just a lot of words. Uh, When people of gifts, abilities, and wisdom murmur. All right, this one might be for some of the kids. Who knows the quote from just about every Spider-Man movie out there about responsibility and power? Who knows that quote? Someone, there we go. Mr. Mitchell, go ahead, loud and proud. Uh, Great responsibility becomes... Oh, no, great power. Word order matters. Absolutely. You got it. <laughs> great power comes great responsibility. Absolutely. Uh, well, just as whoever wrote that comic, Stan Lee, whatever, uh, <laughs> says, um, with, just as responsibility comes with great power, so too does responsibility come with giftings from, God's, from God. The more knowledge, wisdom, spiritual gifts, and abilities one has, Burrow said, the greater the evil of murmuring against God. Um, so another analogy, if you saw two people throwing a tantrum, temper tantrum on the ground, an adult and a toddler, which is worse? We, we all agree the, to- the, the adult's a little bit worse, right? What, why is that? What, why do we think the adult uh, is, is, the, is the worst of the two? Totally not rhetorical. <laughs> They should know better. Absolutely. Absolutely. They, they know what is acceptable behavior and what's not. Uh, does the adult have a slightly better or should have better emotional control than the toddler? Yep, they should. Um, whatever the reason behind the temper tantrum is, should we expect the adult to be able to exercise logic and reason more so than the toddler? Absolutely. We have higher expectations, obviously, for adults than children, rightfully so. In the same way, Burroughs says... Those who have been, again, gifted by God or put in positions of leadership, it is all the more egregious when they are discontented over others. So for husbands to murmur than their wives, for leaders in the church, especially pastors, to murmur compared to the flock, and for those who've known Christ for a long time compared to those who are newer in the faith, the more blessing, the more knowledge, the more ability, the more gifts that God has given, the greater the sin of discontent when those folks who are so gifted 
rebel against God in their heart over something petty and small. Questions on that one? Comments? Did I see a hand? Oh, over there, Randy. The scripture that comes to mind is being admonished by a great apostle saying you should be eating meat and not be drinking milk. Mm-hmm. The expectation is Christians should be maturing and or mature. Yeah, absolutely. 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 We should be maturing 100%. All right, uh, letter D, uh, it's worse when we deserve nothing. Uh, The idea here being pretty simple, if you earn something, it is by definition merited. I think we all can agree on that. If I have a contract at my job that says I get a commission for every sale, um, it would be unjust for the company to withhold that commission when I make a sale. It is mine by right. Um, In the same way, if God withholds something that you have merited or earned, of course that would be unjust. Um, the problem is you, don't, you, you haven't merited anything. None of us have merited anything. It is all a gift from God. Uh, 1 Corinthians 4, verses 6 to 7 Paul says, I've applied, I'm jumping into a context, he says, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you, this is the important part, may be puffed up in favor of one against another. And then he says in a series of rhetorical questions, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you have not received? And if you, if you have then received it, why do you boast as if you have not received it. And in the context of 1 Corinthians, Paul is dealing with a church that has a tendency to divide up into factions. I'm of one guy, you're of another. It'd be like, it'd be like if this side of the church was like, Pastor Greg is the best preacher, Pastor Tim is the best preacher. Like, and we, we're, we're splitting up over, over who is the most gifted uh, uh, proclaimer of God's truth in the church. That's kind of the context in 1 Corinthians. And Paul, in these rhetorical questions, says, all right, fine. Let's, 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 let's assume for the sake of argument that you're gifted in some way, leader X or leader Y. Who, who distinguished you? Who gave you that gift? You didn't, you didn't make it yourself. It was a gift. And if it was a gift, why do you boast? Why do you act as if it was something that you had earned, that you had merited? Everything, everything we have is a gift. What do you have that you did not receive? And the answer is nothing. That's the implied answer to that question. Nothing. And in the church, yes, there are better preachers, there are better counselors, there are uh, men and women who are more gifted than others. Um, that doesn't mean we get to be, we get to be arrogant. Uh, if we do have a greater gift, what makes us a differ? Well, God does. And if everything is an undeserved gift, um, since what we do, I'm sorry, everything is an undeserved gift because everything that we have, the only thing that we earn, the only thing that we've merited before God is, is an eternity of, of wrath and suffering. And so if everything we have is an unmerited gift, if we merit no good thing, then it is especially egregious when we stamp our feet and act like we are entitled to the thing that we're so angry about. It's all a gift. You didn't earn it. Why are you upset that you didn't get it? That's kind of the question. Uh, letter E, when we received what we were discontented over. Um, this is a fun one. Uh, so, and then we kind of touched on this in the, in the, the stupidity section. Um, but this is Burroughs pointing out that it's especially egregious when someone's discontented over something they have, and then they get it, and they're discontented over the thing that they just got. Um, and so, again, going back to that, that same promotional example that we had talked about, you know, I, I just... 
upset over Bob and that promotion. I work hard to get it. I get the promotion, and with it comes consequences. And now I'm discontent because my wife's mad at me because I'm never home. You know, the people aren't respecting me, even though I have this fancy job title. And I end up making probably less per hour because of the number of hours that I'm working. Um, that would be extra bad, says Burroughs. Um, and uh, he, you know, there's, there's also, I, I think, kind of bound up in this one, some practical advice that we touched on last week that would be good to sort of quickly revisit. Um, but w- when someone is discontented about a circumstance, it is necessarily because they think that the thing, whatever it is, is preferential to what they have now. I mean, no one is discontent about something they think is less good than the stuff they've got at present. If you're discontent about something, it's because you think the thing you lack is really important and it's terrible you don't got it. It's kind of a a self-explanatory reality. Um, And so to combat that, we need to continuously remind ourselves that the grass isn't always greener. We need to continuously remind ourselves that sometimes God withholds the thing because what we want is actually bad for us. And we need to continuously remind ourselves that God is God and we're not. You know, we, we looked at the book of Job uh, you know, a few months ago and one of the big issues in that book for Job is that he and his friends presume to see the bigger picture. We will never understand everything that God is doing in the world. Our job is to trust that he knows what he's doing as he ordains providences in our lives. He may, as we've covered already, withhold the thing because it's an idol for us. He may withhold it because while we think it would be really beneficial and great to get the thing... It would lead to some big sin if we got it, like pride, neglect, greed, or worldliness. Or perhaps, in some cases, he's withholding that blessing that we're so pining for because he's using our present circumstances to bless us in some way that we don't see or bless someone else in a way that we haven't yet understood yet. Um, there was a, I forget actually who, who, who to attribute this quote to, but someone once said that oftentimes we think that as we kind of think about our lives and circumstances, wisdom is the ability to understand what God is doing in our lives. And um, that's totally wrong. Wisdom is, is, is having the, the self-awareness to say, I'm not capable of thinking on the scale that God does. So as he's weaving this tapestry of life and, and the world together, it is folly for us to say that we should be able to sort of understand everything that he's doing. We need to recognize that he's God, we're not. What he's doing in the world is bigger and more powerful and better than anything that we can imagine. And so we need to trust that he has our best interests at heart, you know, uh, pursuant to Romans 8.28, and that just because we don't see it doesn't mean that we're right about it. It's the height of arrogance to think that I can truly understand the complexity of what God is doing in my life. And so, um, again, just just some encouragements from Burroughs. All right, letter F. um, It's especially bad when those who have been elevated by God murmur. Um, This one, uh, he, he offers up an analogy. If a beggar were to show up at your door, starving, poorly clothed, frostbitten, and you were to invite him into your house warm him, clothe him, put food in front of him. Imagine if that beggar at that point were to complain about the quality of the food. 
that would be fairly outrageous. Now, if you if you put soap in front of them, if you like, you know, uh, put something that looked edible but totally wasn't, if you, you know, were eating steak and you gave him gristle or something along those lines, like obviously he'd have a right to complain. That would be just horrible, a cruel joke on your part. But if you made a sincere effort to do him good and he were to complain about that, it would speak to a pretty ridiculous level of entitlement, wouldn't it? Well, in the same way, we were dead, rebellious sinners, which is the most beggarly state anyone could be in. God in Christ has brought us to an exalted state um, as redeemed in Christ, as adopted sons and daughters of the king, heirs of the world. Again, going back to that, that passage of 1 Corinthians, we have everything. He has promised to provide for our needs, not fulfill our wants, but to provide for our needs. And our discontentment is therefore like the better beggar who thinks the food graciously offered to him is beneath him. Burroughs' point here, again, is we were in one state, uh, a, a horrible, downtrodden, painful, broken state. God has exalted us to a place beyond our comprehension, beyond anything we could ever have hoped to have merited or deserved. And so we're, we're, we're what? We're complaining about some, some trivial, small thing again. You know, we're like that beggar who has been, whose life has been saved and we're complaining about the quality of food. That is the, the essence of discontentment. It's a greater sin uh, for Christians because there is nobody in the, the exalted state that a Christian is in. It'd be one thing, maybe, if someone who was outside of Christ who, who is discontented, but for those of us who are in this particular exalted state who have received all the blessings that we have, it's especially bad when we murmur, when we are discontented. Yeah, Allie. Just for definition purposes, is there a difference between murmuring, grumbling, and complaining? <laughs> uh, 500 years ago, no. Um, it, it, and so w- w- that's a really good, really good question. So when we, when we use the word murmuring or, or grumbling um, or complaining, um, they, they are all meant to be synonymous so far in the class. Um, and they're all meant to be sort of the, the verbal fruit of a discontented heart, if that helps. Good question. Very good question. All right. We have just a few left um, and just enough time to get through them. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go quick, hopefully not too quick. I've already been going quick. Um, but this next one, letter G, when we were once great sinners. Uh, so again, very similar ethic to the previous one. Think of it as the same side of the coin. Burroughs reminds us that the same God whose governance of the universe has led to us having a reprieve from justice now leads you to some painful providence. In other words, God, who is orchestrating everything, has decided that he is going to save you. And in doing so, he is now leading you to some painful providence. And and Burroughs makes two observations from that point. He says, you know, If we celebrate how wise, I'm I'm paraphrasing, how wise and gracious and amazing God is because he has rescued us from a wrath, did he suddenly become unwise, ungenerous, and bad now that he ordained something painful for you? Like those, those, those things don't track. Either he is this gracious, wonderful, loving God as manifested in his saving of you. He didn't all of a sudden wake up on the wrong side of the bed and now become this mean thing. Whatever he's ordaining is still in keeping with that ethic and character that saved you in the first place. Um, 
And he, he goes on and says, let's, let's, let's grant that the providence you're experiencing that's painful, let's pretend that it isn't God working something directly for your good. That is totally unbiblical, but let's just pretend for the sake of argument that whatever God has ordained for your life doesn't actually have a direct benefit uh, to you. Burroughs says, so? You deserve an eternity of wrath. What you're experiencing in this painful providence is one one billionth, and there's not enough zeros in the world to put on that math equation, of what you actually deserve. So even if this wasn't working out for your good, and it is, even if it wasn't, you deserve far worse. So what's the complaint about? What's the complaint about? When sinners who are saved are discontent, it's an especially grievous thing, is what letter G is aiming at. Uh, Letter H is when the providence is our fault. Um, Now, one clarification, this one, by fault, Burroughs doesn't mean when we're experiencing the consequence for our sins. So, you know, going back to... uh, 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 you, you, you flirt with the neighbor, uh, neighbor's wife, and you get caught, like you know, and your wife's mad at you. That's a consequence. That's not. That's not the fault that Burroughs is talking about here. He he means situations where God is using a painful providence to prune us for greater fruitfulness. In that sense, I could be, should be more fruitful. God isn't punishing me. He's not. There's not a direct consequence for my sin, but He's using a painful providence to widow away at some. Uh, you know, lack of faith or some inaction or something in my life so that I might be more, more fruitful. That's what he's talking about. Pruning, not punishment. Um, and Burroughs says that whenever, whatever painful providence we're experiencing is intended to uh, address some lack of fruit of our lives, when that's the case, why are we then discontent when it is nothing more than the Lord making us fitter for service? In other words, if what God is doing is making you better, why are you upset? It is nothing more than the Lord benefiting you, improving you. Um, if you don't like it, uh, if you don't like the providence, well, the reason for it is because you lack the fruit. The, 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 the cause, the root cause, is attributable to you. You're angry at God for something that is your fault, your doing, um, is what letter H is aiming at. Uh, all right, let me get through these last two, then we can circle back for questions. Yeah, last two. Um, uh, letter I, when God is unusually bringing about the affliction. Um, of all the ones to sort of wrap your head around, this might be one of the more esoteric, one of the, 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 the least practical. Um, but Burroughs' point is there are times where God seems to be doing something extraordinary in our life. And so when he is clearly doing something outside of the norm, to resist that is proportionately Worse, um, and he gives an example that I'll modernize. You know, imagine imagine you've got a CEO of a company, uh, a manufacturing company, and the guy shows up on a floor, and the factory manager is going to give him a tour, and the CEO says three things on the tour. First, he says the normal sort of like meet and greet stuff that you would expect: shake hands, hi, how you doing? While they're going on the tour. He sees something inefficient, and so he remarks to the factory manager. You, know, you might want to get that looked at or you might want to change the process. He gives them constructive advice on how to make the, the factory run better. That's the second thing he says. And then the third thing he says is in the middle of the tour, he sees something happening that is horribly unsafe. He stops the tour. He stops the production floor. He looks at the manager and says, you need that fixed by tomorrow or you're fired. Those are the three things this guy says on the tour. 
Now, as the CEO, the factory manager who reports to him should pay attention to everything that he says. That's the benefit of his position. But there are more important things on that tour that he said, and there are less important things. The first one is not as important as the second one, and the third one trumps them all. So Burroughs' point is when God is doing something in our lives that is an unusual providence, uh, something big is happening, for us to resist that is particularly worse. Um, And the only example I can think to give, because he doesn't uh, in in the chapter actually explain exactly what this means, is like um, if you're, you're, you know, you could think of like Job as a biblical example. Something big is, is clearly happening there. Um, but if you're experiencing like a series of humbling moments, you're a particularly prideful person, and over the course of like weeks and months, you just get, you know, there's an embarrassment, there's a humbling moment, you're wrong, you know, like th- those things start happening and adding up. Something big seems to be happening in your life with respect to that particular sin of pride. You know, uh, that, that if you were discontented over that, you would potentially be resisting something that God's hand is clearly addressing in your life. Um, that's the best I can do in explaining that one. Uh, hopefully, hopefully it's at least somewhat clear. Um, and if you've got questions, happy to talk about that one. But let me, let me just wrap up with letter J. Uh, this one, fortunately, is short, uh, but it's, uh, it's when we are long discontented, when we are long discontented. I've said in prior classes that discontentment uh, can last for moments. You can be upset for short periods of time and then, you know, get over it and move on. Uh, but the words for rebellion and murmuring in Hebrew imply a little bit longer of a duration. Um, that, you know, it's bitterness. It's something that you camp on. Um, and so discontentment is usually something that lingers. Um, and uh, Burroughs' point here is that any sin, any sin that we persist in is worse than a sin that we more quickly repent of. Um, and I'll end on this. It says, Burroughs warns those who fail to see the evil of discontentment and that are not quick to recognize it and repent from it and flee from it, but who is instead discontented for long periods of time over an issue. That person shows that the unbelieving rebellion behind their discontentment is deeply rooted and that they are stubbornly persisting against the promptings of the spirit and working and against the working of their conscience. Those who are long discontent are not just rebelling for a long time, but they're actively resisting the working of the Holy Spirit, their conscience, which is arguing them uh, towards repentance, prompting them towards repentance, Um, which are, of course, good, sober words to end on. Um, And we made it. Any questions on the foolishness of discontentment or any of these aggravations of the sin of murmuring or the sin of discontentment. Does this? I know I went fast. Does that make sense? Is it, did, I, did I gloss over anything too fast? If I, need, if I need to, I can go back. All right, I'm going to roll with it. Thank you, peeps. Um, let's uh, let's pray, and we'll we'll end our we'll end our class. Father, thank you again for this this these humbling uh, and gracious reminders. Gracious because they're humbling, Lord. We. Uh, we hopefully, Lord, are a people who are submissive and joyous 
in whatever you ordain in our lives, Lord, even as we may struggle with confusion or grief or, or, or whatever else, Lord, that doesn't rise to the level of, of discontent. But just pray that insofar as we have any hearts that unduly prioritize this world, the things in it, insofar as there's any idols, Lord, that we, that we yearn for, just pray, Lord, that you would... A, rid us of those, and B, not lead them. Let us let them lead us into a, a period of discontent where we will just wreck everything and make make our lives and our relationships worse. May we see the evil of discontent. May we recoil from it, want to flee from it, repent of it. May we see its harmful and and foolish effects, Lord, and be a people who strive to count our blessings, to submit to your sovereignty and to prioritize Jesus Christ above all else. It's in his name we pray. Amen.